Uh, upstairs, we've had some problems, so we're going to have those uh, potentially replaced. But So I apologize for the heat uh, upstairs. The third floor is not workable, so they'll go down to the second floor uh, today. So we're working to get all that fixed. It's the, the glory of owning a hundred and some year old building, but we're making some progress. I'm glad you're here on this Memorial Day weekend. It is always one of the uh, lowest attended Sundays of the year. It kicks off what's always a topsy-turvy summer in ministry life. Uh, I hope that you will take the opportunity to grow with us, take the opportunity to engage in church life this summer. Uh, briefly, uh, as a church planter, I want to speak to a little bit about the season of, of ministry that we are in. We are winding down our discipleship groups um, so during the fall and spring semesters, we have what we call sort of deep groups where we try to grow deeply together in the word and in community. And in the summer and during the holidays, we have what we call sort of these open times, right, where we seek to grow wide, connecting new people to each other in our fellowship and connecting new people to the church at Large. So this summer is a time where we're really striving to connect people to one another and connect people to the church. So I hope you'll leverage that uh, with us. Last week, we jumped right into the sermon. We preached from Exodus chapter 32 and considered Israel's worship of a golden calf and their abandonment of the covenant. We saw three major themes in the text, idolatry, intercession, and Judgment And the end of chapter 32 leaves us in a bleak place. Look with me at the end of chapter 32, verse 35. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. So Aaron, a leader of the people and the people, have come together. They've created this golden calf to whom they've given their worship, saying, These are the gods that have brought us out of Egypt. They have sinned. They have turned from God. Some of the people died from their idolatry, but they all experienced this plague. The end of chapter 32 leaves us in a bleak place wondering what will happen next. And I, I wonder if you've ever been in a similar place. Perhaps you've made a terrible decision and sat with your head in your hands thinking, what's going to happen now? Now that I've done this, what's going to happen? Everything will change. And I think that's the tension in which we find Israel this morning. They have sinned a grievous sin against God. They've just received all these instructions for life under God's rule, for worship in God's tabernacle, but they've broken that covenant. So now there's this painful reality of, of now that we've done this, What's going to happen with us? I almost picture a, a husband, right, who's, who's left his family for the promise of a better life out there. And he's sitting in his apartment all by himself like, what now? Like, where do I go for Christmas? Where do I, what do I do? Like, what is my life going to look like now that this thing has happened? And I think it's in that tension that Israel finds herself this morning. Now, ultimately, we'll see next week, God is going to renew his covenant with Israel. But I want to rest in the tension of Israel's really messing up and really not knowing what might happen next. Will they ever worship God in that tabernacle that he has spoken of? Will they have any living fellowship with God at all? How are they going to overcome the much more 
powerful peoples that occupy the land they've been given if the Lord their God is not with them. This morning I want to do two things briefly. I want to see how the narrative unfolds, paying particular attention to how Moses develops as an intercessor between God and his people. And then I want to delve into the biggest theme of the text, which I would argue is God's presence. I want to make the case that what made Israel unique is also what makes us unique. God is with us. You know, every religion has doctrine, and there's often overlap in those doctrines. Every religion has systems of worship, and there can at times be overlap in those systems of worship. Every religion has a set of ethics, right? Things that we should do, ways that we should live, and there's very often overlap in those ethics. So in many ways, religious life can be somewhat similar amongst religions. There are many ways our worship, our ethics, our doctrine is similar to others. There are many ways our worship, our ethics, our doctrine are different than other religions. But here's what at its core sets us apart. The living God dwells among us. That statement is either entirely arrogant. We're different from everyone else because God's actually on our side. That statement's either arrogant or that statement is true. What sets us apart is the fact that the living God is among us, even on frustratingly hot mornings. Let's look in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. Oh, there's like 15 microphones up here. Move that. 33, sorry. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Verse 3 is a stark contrast, right? The Lord tells Moses, they've been at Mount Sinai for a while now in the text. You're going to leave this mountain. You're going to go to the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to send an angel. Notice he's not saying himself here. I'm going to send an angel before you. He will take care of these powerful peoples who occupy the land, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And when you get there, you'll see the land's incredible. It's flowing with milk and honey. But here's the other side of the stark contrast. But I am not coming. I am. Imagine your father, your beloved father, if you, you love your father, right? You'll go and you're, you're going to go stay in the best place ever, right? I booked this place for you right on the coast and it's gorgeous. It's got all these bedrooms. It's this massive house with beautiful views. It's got a pool. It's got air conditioning. Uh, it's, got, it's got everything you could possibly want. A little whistle going on back there. It's got everything you could possibly want, but here's the catch. I'm not coming. I'm not coming. You would be like, but dad, but dad, I, I, the whole point is that I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you. Not just that I'll have this great stuff. The people are distraught, right? 
Verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. There is both grace and judgment in God's decision not to be with his people. There's judgment because he's withholding his presence, the thing they supposedly most desire, but there's also grace because if his holiness were among them, he would consume them in their sin. He tells the people to humble themselves before him, to take off their ornaments that he may know what to do with them. Verses 1 through 6 contain the command to leave Sinai. Now, verses 7 through 23 detail Moses' intercession, and I'm not going to read them all, but we can begin in chapter, in verse 7. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. So Moses would take this tent, he would pitch it far off from the camp, and if we would continue to read, we would see that this tent is where Moses would meet with God. It's almost like a very, very temporary tabernacle, right? That God would come into this tent and meet with Moses, and a pillar of smoke would come and rest outside of the tent, and that would be a symbol to all of God's people that God is present. And the God-fearers, the God-worshippers among them would come and they would gather outside their homes and they would worship God who they knew was among them. And we're introduced again to another person who's going to be so important in the life of Israel, and that is Joshua. Right? Joshua wouldn't be in there with Moses, but he would be around there with Moses, seeing what all is happening. God would be training Joshua up to eventually lead God's People. Now, verses 12 through 23 contain a pivotal back and forth between Moses and God. I think you notice that Moses has a little uh, chutzpah, as our Jewish friends would say. Look in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. You're telling me to deliver these people from Sinai. But you haven't told me who else coming. You haven't told me who's going to help me do that. Yet you have also said, I know you by name and you have found favor in my sight. Therefore, God, Moses says in verse 13, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways. Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Moses tells God, you tell me that I am special, right, that you know my name, that I found favor in your sight. If that's true, would you show me your ways that I may know you and that I may lead people the way you want me to lead them. And finally, at the very end of his first appeal to God, he says, consider too, and also this, God, this nation is your people. This nation is your people. In verse 14, God responds to Moses. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses has interceded uh, on behalf of God's people. He has reminded God of his unchanging character, of his promises. He has prayed, essentially. And in verse 14, the text says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. 
Moses then responds in verse 15. He said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. If your presence won't go with us, let us just stay right here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Is it not your coming with us that makes us distinct from the nations, Moses says to God. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 17, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. So check this out. The God is saying, This very thing you've spoken, Moses, I will do. I will answer your prayer. I will, I will lead in this way. And, God, and Moses then says, Show me your glory. Would you show me your glory? And what he's asking for is a confirmation from God that he is going to do as he said. So God has said, I will do as you've said. I'll do as you've requested. And Moses is saying, then God, would you show me your glory? May I know for certain that I've interacted with you. May I know for certain that you're here. May I know for certain that this is how you're going to act. And God puts Moses, right, in the cleft of the rock. And he, he covers him with his hand that Moses may not be completely enveloped in his glory. And then as he's passed by, Moses would be able to see some sort of form to know that he has interacted with the great I am. This language in verse, uh, let's see, verse 22, right? And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand. That language, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, may perhaps remind you of an old hymn, right? Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Right? The hymn writer is thinking of Jesus and this language of Exodus 33. Rock of ages, Jesus, who has been cleft for me. He shields us from the judgment of God. He's absorbed the wrath of God in our place. A rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Right? This text, this rock, again, prefigures Jesus, the rock who's been cleft for us. Jesus has shielded God's judgment from us by absorbing God's judgment for us. That's important. Like, hang in there. I'm going to be very brief today. Jesus has shielded God's judgment from us by absorbing God's judgment for us. Now, we've seen the basic plot movement, right? God has told the people, leave here. Moses has gone back and forth with God. Okay, but if we're leaving, we're not leaving without you. And this appeal has been successful. So this is the basic plot movement in the text. In the weeks that follow, we're going to see God restoring and renewing this covenant and the life of Israel that goes on. However, I think the main issue, the main theme at play in our text today is the presence of God. And for the rest of the sermon, for about 10 minutes or so, I want to go through six brief things we can learn about the presence of God this morning in our text text. Because I think that's what's at play from the very, very beginning to the very, very end. God's people know that in some way they're going to stay alive. They're just curious about what their relationship with God is going to be like. And so the first thing I'd like us to see is the most important, is that is that God's presence makes us unique in verse 14. Moses asked rhetorically, is it not your presence that distinguishes us from the other nations? 
Is it not your presence that makes us different? When you think of Israel in the Old Testament, think contrast community. When you think of Israel in the Old Testament, think contrast community. This is how the nations live. This is how Israel live. These are the gods that the nations worship. This is the living God that Israel worship. Ultimately, God would come through Israel in the person of Jesus for the salvation of the nations. The people that Jesus would gather to himself from all nations would be the church, and the church is the new Israel church. We are God's people, a nation of nations among whom God's Spirit dwells. What makes us unique in the panoply of the world's religions is that God dwells with us. This is the glorious news of Christianity. God has come to earth in Jesus Christ. The second thing, God's presence gives us meaning. God's presence gives us meaning in verse 15. If you're not coming, we're not going. They find their significance in who God is on their behalf. Their lives find their meaning in Jesus. I'm going to ask a rhetorical question, and if you've tuned out or I'm about to pass out, zone in here for just a moment. Jesus asked a lot of rhetorical questions, and I'm going to ask a couple here. If you were offered everything you ever wanted, just without God's presence, would you take it? If you were offered everything you ever wanted, just without God's presence, you could even have the religious stuff. Like, you could have the biggest church in the world. You can have the religious stuff that you might want, just without God's presence. Would you take it? And you're all good Christians, right? No, 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 of course not, of course not, of course not. Then I have a second rhetorical question. How much time do you spend pursuing those things versus how much time do you spend pursuing God? How much time do you spend pursuing the things that you most desire, whether that's comfort, pleasure, purpose for you, so people know that you matter, right? Money, fame. How much time do you spend pursuing the things that you most want versus how much time do you spend pursuing God? Not simply for what he'll give you, but for who he is. How much time do you spend pursuing God in his word? How much time do you spend pursuing God in prayer? How much time do you spend sacrificially pursuing God in the church, which many, many of you this morning are doing? How much time do you spend pursuing God in fasting? How much time do you spend pursuing God in meditation on Scripture? Perhaps it brings into focus more the way you would answer that question if you were honest with yourself, if you were given everything you ever wanted just without God's presence, Would you take it? Moving on. Number three, God's presence gives us joy. 
God's presence gives us joy. When God's people realized God would not be with them, what did they do? They mourned. They took off their jewelry. They took off their ornaments. Think about like a funeral in our context, right? You take off all your extra stuff and you wear black. You wear sort of a neutral color and you don't dress up too much because you're, you're mourning, right? You're not showing yourself off. You want to be low-key out of respect for what's going on. God's people are in mourning because God's presence will not be with them. God's presence gives us joy on hot Sunday mornings. God's presence gives the persecuted church joy when they gather for fear of their life. God's presence gives us joy when things don't go the way that we think they should go. Heaven could be hell if God were not there, but hellish situations can have the aroma of heaven if God is in the midst of them. God's people are getting a land flowing with milk and honey, flowing with everything they could ever want, but God's not coming. And this isn't a, uh, at least we get the milk and honey, right? It's an uh, utter response of devastation. God's presence gives us joy. Will I choose to embrace God's presence and receive that joy or not? Point number four, God's presence is intimate. God's presence is intimate. Inside that tent of meeting in verse 11, the text says that that God would speak to Moses as a man speaks to a man, right? As a friend speaks to a friend. There's an intimacy that Moses experiences with God when he's in that tent of meeting. And I want to make the case that in Jesus, we are friends of God. That does not diminish his glory. It exalts his humility that God would call us his friends. In John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I've made known to you. Number five. God's presence gives us rest. Look with me in verse 14. After Moses has made his initial appeal to God to come with him, he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Jesus uses this language in in, in, let's see, in Matthew chapter 11, in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's presence gives us rest. Worship team, go ahead and come on up as we're approaching our last point. I want to delve into this a little bit on this idea that God's presence gives us rest. Because in that text, Jesus is talking to religious leaders of the day. He's talking to religious scholars. Imagine Jesus sort of walking onto a seminary campus and talking to the doctorate students and, and inviting them. And that's, that's really who he's talking to in these moments. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. For my yoke is easy. And when he's talking about that yoke, he's talking about how he interprets the scriptures, how he interprets the Torah, the first, the Old Testament, right? Jesus is saying, all of you who are trying to figure out how to live, what's the main point of all of this? And you're working so diligently to figure that out. I invite you to like stop all of your hand wringing and come to me. 
Like, come to me, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Come to me, and you'll find rest. If you come to Jesus this morning, you experience God's presence, and God's presence gives you rest. Rest for your soul as you've met the one for whom it was created. Rest to stop performing because your acceptance before God doesn't depend on you. Rest from having to hurry up and make something of your life because you know that your worth is found in Christ. The presence of God among us gives us rest. And finally, the sixth and final point, God's presence is overwhelming. Only Moses in our text this morning would meet with God in the tent of meeting. But even Moses could not see the fullness of God. He couldn't enjoy the fullness of his presence without being destroyed. Because even Moses is a sinner. Right, God couldn't come with his people or God wouldn't come with his people because he would utterly overtake them and overwhelm them with his holiness and his presence. The whole community of Israel and Moses himself could not stand in God's presence. Sinful man church. Another moment to zone in here as we wind to a close. Sinful man cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. That is, unless a holy God stands in the place of sinful man. Sinful man cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. That is, unless a holy God stood in the place of sinful man. Church, Jesus Christ is the radiance of the invisible God. When you look at Jesus, you've seen God. He drew near to us. He wrapped himself in flesh. He walked the dirt roads that we walked. And ultimately, he would stand in our place. His body would be broken and his blood would be shed for us. In Jesus, God's mercy was upheld. In Jesus, God's justice was upheld. In Jesus, God's wrath was satisfied. In Jesus, God has drawn near to us. Do you know God's presence this morning? Do you know the peace that passes understanding? Do you know that there is one who's in you and who's with you, who's greater than he who is in the world? Do you know the peace that no one else understands? Do you know what it's like to go through brokenness and disappointment and frustration, yet not be crushed because Christ is with you? Do you know what it's like to go through failure and disappointment, but somehow keep going because God is with you. Do you know how to serve in such a way that you give yourself 
up. Paul said, I am being poured out on the altar of your faith like a drink offering in the Old Testament. Paul said, if you take, think about the priest who goes up and he pours water on the sacrifice, Paul says, that's my life. I get up early. I go to bed late, I do things I don't want to do, I study, I read, I serve in ways I don't want to serve, I sacrifice. I'm not constantly thinking how I don't get enough rest. Oh, woe is me. I serve and I, I give myself away for Christ. And somehow, 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 I'm perpetually filled back up. Because it's when we empty ourselves out that God fills us with himself. It's when we stop believing the lie that life's about us and start believing the truth that life's about him that we begin to realize that God's presence can sustain us on great mornings and on terrible mornings. God's presence can sustain us in the workplace and on the mission field and he'll sustain us when you realize that the workplace and the mission field are in fact the same place. God's presence, church, is what makes us unique. Not our buildings. Our theology is unique, but our theology is unique because God is alive and he lives among us. Church, are we cultivating our sense and our awareness and our love of God's presence among us? Or are we looking like the rest of the world who builds up our religious tower to throw stones at everyone else? Is a healthy life of faith being cultivated in us? And I don't know about you, but for much of my early ministry, I had a whole lot of knowledge. Well, actually, I didn't. I thought I did. I knew as much as I could know, but there was not a healthy, cultivated life of faith in me. And I've become a whole lot less impressed with people who can answer all these questions in such a way that makes them more marketable to the evangelical masses. And I've become a whole lot more impressed with godly men and women who have seen the face of God. Of men and women who cultivate the sense of God's presence. Of men and women who aren't shaken when everything around them gives way. Of men and women who pour themselves out in unrecognized places in ways that aren't fancy for the glory of God and the good of his church. Do you know this presence? Do you know this God who can fill you when you're empty? This God who will restore you when you're broken? Look to Jesus this morning and live. Let's pray. Father, we are in your presence right now. You're with us. We are your church. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as we gather on this Memorial Day weekend, you are with us. And Lord, I am so guilty of coming in and being frustrated because air's not working in these rooms and that room. And, and I got to get this figured out and we got to get this figured out. And I, I am so guilty, Lord, if this is just a prayer from my heart, of letting everything else distract me from the reality of your presence. Lord, remind us this morning that you've created us to know you. You've created us 
to live in your presence. But sin has kept us from that reality. But you pursued us even further than sin ever could. You pursued us to the point of the cross that we may one day know again what it's like to live in your presence. That we may be like Israel, whose presence, who your presence among us makes us unique. Lord, that your presence would give us meaning, that your presence would give us joy despite circumstances, that we would know you intimately, that we would cast all of our cares on you because you care for us, Lord. You've pursued us, that your presence may dwell among us and you may give us rest. Rest from the jockeying for status and position that the world is always doing. And Lord, you've invited us in to your overwhelming glory. Lord, you've walked us into places where angels fear to tread. Help us, Father, to pursue you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who dwells in us and among us, who points us to your presence, who is your presence, rather, among us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm really glad that you joined us this morning. Uh, We will be back at it again next week. I hope you'll join us. We're finishing up our series in Exodus, and then we have a couple of, uh, I think, very, very necessary uh, sermon series that deal with um, the way we speak to one another and the way the gospel impacts that and the way we exist in digital spaces. And this summer, we're taking an opportunity to think about how we are the body of Christ and 
in bodiless space. And so let's let's sing the doxology and be dismissed. Grace and peace be with you. You're dismissed. <laughs>